Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. From best-selling authors to researchers, we share insights from the sharpest minds in psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience. You probably know that with more than 60 episodes each year, we read a lot of books. We like almost all of them, but we like them for different reasons. Our guest today has a book that we think is going to help introduce lots and lots of people to behavioral science in some really cool ways on a really important topic, your personal influence. Zoe Chance is a professor at the Yale School of Management, where she teaches a popular elective called Mastering Influence and Persuasion. Or, as it's known on campus, doing uncomfortable things that make you a better person. (laughs) (laughs) Her research has been published in top academic journals, the Harvard Business Review and Psychology Today. And the reason she is with us in this episode is that she is the author of Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change and Making Good Things Happen. And this wonderful book is being delivered by online shopping services everywhere starting this week. We talked to Zoe about her clever way of framing System 1 and System 2 thinking, how being influential isn't as hard as it appears, and about what she likes to call the magic question. So, Kurt... What would it take for you to tell me about the magic question? (laughs) Hey, that's my line, Tim. And you'll just have to listen to hear Zoe talk about the incredible power of the magic question. But more importantly, we want to encourage listeners who have not gotten deep into behavioral science to check out Zoe's book. Influence is Your Superpower is a great way to explore some foundations of behavioral science while at the same time getting a gentle nudge to advocate for the issues that you feel are important in the world, like yourself. Yeah, we encourage you to check out the book, but right now we want to say thank you for listening to Behavioral Grooves. And if you like it, please refer it to a friend or a colleague. We hear from people all the time who learned about Behavioral Grooves because someone shared it with them. In fact, you may have learned about it because someone recommended it to you. So please pass it on. Yes, pass it on. That is a fantastic way to influence others in a positive way. And we would greatly appreciate that. And with that, we encourage you to sit back and relax with a glass mixed of gators and judges and enjoy our conversation with Zoe Chance. Zoe Chance, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you, Tim. Super excited to be here. We are excited to have you. And as always, we start with a speed round. And so hopefully I can pronounce the, this, this correctly, but we're going to start here. So, Zoe, would you prefer Kopi Luwak coffee or Black Ivory coffee? <laughs> it, it, I would prefer Black Ivory coffee because I've tasted Kopi Luwak coffee and it wasn't even interesting. And for listeners who don't know, <laughs> they're both made of poop. Yes, they are. <laughs> and they are the two most expensive coffees in the world. Yes. Which illustrates the scarcity principle. There's very little of them. And actually, it turns out Kopi Luwak comes from the beans that get eaten and excreted by civet cats in Indonesia. And black ivory comes from beans that have been eaten eaten and excreted by elephants. (laughs) Wow. There's such... 
so these coffees are so expensive, like $600 a pound. Uh, black ivory, I think, is $1,000 a pound that there's a giant black market. So don't go out and buy them. First of all, the animals are mistreated. But second of all, there's an 80% chance that what you get is not even real. It's just counterfeit. <laughs> it's just wow. it's just actual poop. So that's, uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's what that is. All right. Okay. Good, good you- insight for our listeners. Thank you. Would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite actor or favorite musician? Oh, my gosh. Um, I prefer to have dinner with my favorite actor, Britt Marling. She's an actor, writer, director, and she was she's most famous for starring in the OA. And I just think she's absolutely genius. And I would probably freak out and not be able to speak. <laughs> That's okay. That. That's okay. Yeah. We've been there. Yeah. We've all been there. Okay. Yeah. Brussels sprouts or parsnips? Oh my God. Brussels sprouts all the way. Parsnips are disgusting. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I think I would agree with you 100% there. Because it's factual truth. No. <laughs> okay. It's I not totally opinion. disagree. That is not opinion. That is <laughs> no. just, it's, it's, a, it's a verified fact. We can go with that. Yeah, I, all right. I agree. agree to disagree on that one. I'm have to <laughs> oh my right. God. How are um, you? Oh. Uh, you okay. know, Tim, I'm just oh, I'm disappointed once more time. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, Kirk or Picard? Oh, okay. It's a little bit hard. I'm a huge Trekkie and a big sci-fi nerd in general. My PhD thesis, my dissertation was called Live Long and Prosper. That's what a big <laughs> Trekkie nerd I am. Mm-hmm. But Picard. Picard will always oh. have a, a very big place in my heart. And oh. actually, my husband's a Trekkie too. And for Christmas, what I gave him. So for any listeners, who, like this is going deep into the, the wormhole of nerdiness. But if you enjoyed Star Trek Discovery, then, you know, Seven of Nine. Mm-hmm. Jerry Ryan is the actor who played this character. She's very sexy. She's gorgeous. She was Miss Illinois and competed. She was one of the contestants in Miss America. And anyway, my husband loves her. And on Cameo, she was appearing there as one of the actors that you can buy a message from. So I bought him a message from Jerry Ryan and he <laughs> freaked out. And he had, he had also just joined LinkedIn and he didn't know what LinkedIn is, I think, he thought it was Facebook. And so he posted on LinkedIn, oh, look what my wife gave me for Christmas. And everyone's like, oh. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, and it was in a little wallet that was Picard brand. So oh, he wow. now has a Picard wallet yeah. with the card that sent him to the Jerry Ryan message. So so why Picard over Kirk? I mean, Kirk was the original. He was the kind of, you know, the, the Picard a little more, you know. Cognitively, you know, thinking, you know, what's what's your take? So honestly, Picard is just hotter, and <laughs> so this is okay. All just... right, we get down to the brass knuckles, right? <laughs> yeah, there, there like, it is. All right, good. Yeah. I can make some excuses, but I'm just giving you the truth. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Which is faster, the Gator brain or the Judge brain? The gator is so fast, you can't even see it move. And the judge is slow and plodding. Okay, so so these are your so, terms for system one and system two. So this is where we get out of we get out of the the, the speed round here. Um, and and most of our most of our listeners are familiar with Kahneman and, and system one, system two. Tell us a little yeah. bit about um, where the the judge and gator brain analogy came from, and and why you're using that as opposed to kind of the the system one, system two component, the dual processing theory. You know, because you're teaching people how to apply behavioral economics and behavioral science 
things like system one and system two that it's so easy to forget which is which. No. Type it's, one error, a, type two error. I still can't tell. Right. I never yeah, remember. Me too. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> hmm. So when you're teaching people system one and system two, it's a very system two way of <laughs> teaching and learning uh-huh. these things. And it requires conscious effort. But when you teach them an analogy, it doesn't matter what the analogy is. I pick Gator and Judge because I tell a little story about Gatorland and then I share some research on judges. So that helps those terms stick. But just having a visual thing to imagine and then I tell you the stories and the research around it helps when I've taught you this is the imagine that this is a Gator. Imagine that this is the judge. I'll And by and I'll tell anyone who comes to a workshop with me, don't go out into the world calling it the gator and the judge because it's system one and system two. (laughs) It's not Zoe's trying to change the names of these things. But when I've taught you gator and judge, then you never forget which is which. So who did you write the book for? I wrote the book for people who are smart and kind and deserve boatloads more influence than they have. And we have a lot of misconceptions If we're smart, especially, we have a lot of misconceptions about how influence works. And if we're kind, we have a lot of reluctance about advocating for ourselves and trying to do the things it takes to be influential. So people who are kind and smart have a double liability when it comes to influence. And I wrote this book for them. So give our listeners just a a 30 second, your elevator pitch about what influence is uh, your superpower, kind of the, the main themes, right? I think you probably already just mentioned it in, in what you said, who you wrote it for, but can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Of course. The idea is that influence is this superpower that you were born with. It is your only means of survival when you come into this world. And it's what has allowed our species to survive and thrive is really just people influencing other people's behavior. And we have somehow shied away from the idea that influence is natural and powerful and desirable because the whole idea of influence has been co-opted by like social media influencers Mm -hmm. and tacky, greedy people using tacky, greedy tactics to do things like sell used cars. And so what's happened is we've ended up shying away from learning the science and doing the practice of influence. So we leave influence to the power hungry. And I want this book to change that. That's a fantastic approach to take to the world. I mean, you you really believe this at your core, right? You really like the idea of, of us having influence and using influence in a positive way, right? So I, I guess what I'm thinking about is, is this idea of, of the book is in part sort of a, a manual to learn how to become more influential in a positive way, right? Very much so. Yeah, it's practical. Yeah. So uh, what do you hope to accomplish? Like the reader, what, what do you want the reader to come away with? How do you want them to feel? My desire is related to exactly what you said, is not that they become more knowledgeable about influence, but of course, the more you read, the more knowledgeable you become. And I share a ton of science. But my desire is that the reader will find just one thing. If there's more, it's gravy. But find one thing to put into action to change their life. They could change their life a lot or a little, but I focus on low hanging fruit in the Mm -hmm. practical bits, which are simple things that you can put into practice that really nudge the needle Mm -hmm. or shift 
your outcomes in life in the long run so that by the by the time you go down the path of becoming influential and you start with one tool and then once you've mastered it and it becomes comfortable then you reach for another one right and then you reach for another one and as you've been practicing and mastering these tools and it doesn't have to be mine it can be anybody's eventually you're so comfortable with them that it becomes system one <laughs> dater right habitual right you're in this behavioral groove of doing the influential things people want to say yes to you and then you get to let go of these tools and you get, get to let go of the idea of being consciously strategic about it which is where we all want to be being authentically influential and just relating to people so that they want to say yes yeah so so first off i have to say um, utilizing behavioral grooves in that whole thing is absolutely wonderful. And thank you. you that is that was, you that are automatically gonna... our most favorite guest ever in the history <laughs> of behavioral grooves because you just did something no one else has done. You, that you was fantastic. That was that was that was brilliant, brilliant. Um, yes. But and then I want to go because I think this this ties right in. So you wrote, and I, I'm going to quote you here: "Charisma isn't something you are; it is something you do," which I think ties right back into what you were saying. Right? Is this getting this uh, this information so ingrained in who you are that it is a game? move, not a judge move. So tell us about how charisma isn't something you are, because typically when we think of charisma, we think of charismatic people and it's like, oh, they were born that way. And yet you're saying, no, it's it's what you do. Help us understand that. Yeah. So in the book, I share this story of going to a Prince concert. He is the most charismatic person I've ever been in the presence of. And I've been a huge fan since I was like 10 years old. And my mom took me to see a really adult movie that he was in uh, with Apollonia. So no. I've been waiting my whole life to get to see Prince in concert. This is a few years before he passed. I'm waiting in the tiny little club in Las Vegas and it, he owns the club and he's performing there every night. And we're waiting there for two hours standing in the heat and they're showing Prince videos and they're pumping Prince music. We're waiting and waiting, building up the excitement. He takes the stage and he stares directly into my eyes. I'm absolutely sure. And says something like, are we alone? And I just feel this faintness coming over me. And I lean and that I'm a first year doctoral student. And the friend that I'm there at the concert with is Eldar Shafir, who is this eminent behavioral researcher. And somehow I got to go to the concert with him. And I say, Eldar, oh my God, I think I'm going to faint. And then in that moment, the woman next to me, total stranger, collapses in a dead faint <laughs> because he is so damn charismatic. It's overpowering. And a paramedic comes and is loading her on the stretcher. And I say, oh my God, has that ever happened before? And he says, it's not unusual. Oh my God. So Prince, <laughs> Prince has wow. this insane level of charisma. And I, like you, would have thought of him as being charismatic since birth. But the truth is he was so uncharismatic when he first not just started performing, but became even famous. He had a number one billboard hit. It was, I want to be your lover. 
Warner Brothers, who had signed him, wouldn't even send him on tour because they watched him perform and he sucked. He was so shy. He turned his back to the audience. And when he had to speak to them, he never spoke above a whisper. So they were like, well, you can sell albums, but we are never putting you on a stage. Rick James was on his Super Freak tour and he invited Prince to become his opening act. And during Prince's time of touring with Rick James, he watched and he studied, he emulated Rick James and the way Rick James moved, spoke, talked, and especially how he interacted with the audience and focused his attention on the audience, which is the magic ingredient of charisma, which is something that you can turn on and turn off. You can learn it and all the charismatic people that you know are not like that all the time. It's a, it's some it's a behavior that they can turn on and off. And Olivia Fox Cabain in her book The Charisma Myth tells this story of Marilyn Monroe and how she becomes Marilyn and she's talking to the journalist who's writing a profile of her. They meet in a bar and she's just this shy, quiet, pretty, but rather mousy person. And they ride the subway together in New York City where the car is packed with people and nobody pays any attention to her whatsoever. And they get out on the street and she says, do you want to see Marilyn? And she fluffs up her hair, adjusts her jacket, and then everyone swarms her. Hmm. I love I love the Prince story. I'm sorry, Kurt. I just have to. I just like, <laughs> you're going I to music just, already. I know. I know. I, there I, you go. Well, I, I had the opportunity to record a record at uh, Paisley Park, and Prince <gasps> oh was around God. all the time. And he is he is absolutely that. It is it is very conscious because person to person, very quiet, very shy, very subdued, very hardworking, very intense. Right, but not not you know, huge. And, and this ability to turn it on and off that, that was a, a moment for me to see, my gosh, this guy has this tremendous ability to flip the switch and just become this mega star when he's, when he's, um, you know, in front of, in front of a crowd. So that's amazing. We can talk I'm about so that for jealous. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Park to- is Prince's home and studio, by the way, for people who are not as big Prince fans as we are. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And now it's a museum. So we'll pitch that. Um, Let's get back. We have to get back to the book. God, I could just totally go down this. But um, one of the things about influence that I think is really interesting is that we we tend to think of people don't want to be influenced by us. Right. That they don't want. But you actually argue that there are times when people do when they're open to being influenced by us. Can you talk about that a bit? It's a mixed bag. Right. Because we do have this innate visceral resistance to somebody trying to get something from us. And we're bombarded by influence attempts all the time from, you know, marketers and advertisers, people trying to sell us stuff, grab our attention. And yet in face-to-face interactions, people are so much more, they're two or three times more likely to say yes to our requests than we imagine that we'll be. So we're miscalibrated about how willing other people are to say yes. And we also are miscalibrated about this natural resistance that they have. Mm. So we need to be doing more asking, but we need to be handling them gently without any pressure. So we can be radically successful and radically influential when we learn how to ask people directly and in a warm way, dialing back the pressure so that they feel more comfortable saying no. Ironically, when we make somebody feel comfortable saying no, 
they feel more inclined to say yes. Mm-hmm. Is that the soft ask that you kind of ta- outline in, in the book? The soft ask is a great example of it. So a soft ask is when, and by the way, if you are in sales, you might have heard of this idea as a test close. A so- but this, it's not just for sales. It's any kind of influence is where you ask them hypothetically how they might feel about the thing or how interested or not interested they might be in the thing. And what that does is makes them feel comfortable telling you like, yeah, I don't feel that great about you. I'm not really interested. That's not as awkward as just rejecting you. Mm. But it also lets you know, should you just cut to the chase and make the clothes, ask for the thing. And it helps solve, it helps preserve the relationship if there's going to be some awkwardness if they were to reject you. So in the book, I use the example of you're attracted to a friend and you would like to ask them out. And if you do it directly, would you date me? (laughs) Would you go out to dinner? This is a romantic thing. I'll pick you up at seven. And they say, no, it's really hard to be friends after that. Mm. But if you just bring it up in a hypothetical way, like, so I'm just curious how you might feel about possibly going on a date sometime. And they're like, yeah, I'd kind of rather stay as friends. And you can be like, okay, cool. And there's really not a problem, like minor disturbance in the force, but you can get beyond it. <laughs> and, and again, you bring in some science, uh, science <laughs> fantasy nerdiness there. I love it. I love Thank it. I didn't even that, mean yeah. to. So I, I have another question here. So what would it take for you to tell us about the magic question? <laughs> <laughs> You just did it. Oh. You win the prize. So as Kurt clearly knows, and you've read the entire book, it seems, or at least done a very plausible imitation of reading the entire book. Thank you so much. <laughs> we have three Thank people. You. We split and, and, and kind of conquer. So there you go. <laughs> it's brilliant. The magic question is, the favorite influence technique of a whole lot of students and executives and leaders that I teach because it is so damn easy. Ease is the most powerful influence on behavior, but making it easy for other people to do what you want isn't the easiest thing for you. Asking them the magic question is the easiest thing for you. And so we love it. And Kurt has already asked the magic question, but I'll just, if you'll indulge me, I'll take a couple of minutes to share a story to help the magic question sink in. And to help people remember it, because your gator brain retains stories so much better than just facts. This is a story that American feminist Gloria Steinem told when she came to my hometown of New Haven a few years ago. And she was talking about when she was focused on the problem of sex trafficking. And she was writing about it. She was speaking about it. She was an expert on this problem. She'd just been to a conference in Zambia. And after this conference, she goes to a village where three women had been sex trafficked in the previous year. And she's sitting down with the women of the village in a circle, on a tarp, in a barren field. And rather than giving them her advice as an expert, she asks them the magic question. She says, what would it take for those three young women not to have left the village in that way last year? And they tell her, an electric fence. She says, an electric fence? They say, when our corn reaches a certain height, the elephants come and they eat it and they trample it. And we have no food. We have no money to send our kids to school. And these women and their families, they were just desperate. Mm. So Gloria Steinem goes back home. She raises a few thousand dollars. She sends this money to the women of the village who have promised that if they get the money for the fence, they're going to clear the field and build the fence. 
and they do. She visits them a few years later, and the way that she tells it, they're singing and dancing. I don't know if that's an exaggeration, but there's a bumper crop of corn, and no young women have been sex trafficked since they got the electric fence. The magic question is, what would it take? And it's magic for a bunch of different reasons. The first one is that it's respectful. And this is a quality of all of the influence techniques that I teach. It feels comfortable on both sides. So when you're asking somebody, what would it take? You're not trying to pressure them into something and you're shifting their mindset from resistance to influence, like we just talked about, to collaborative problem solving. And you're acknowledging that they're the expert on their situation and their problems or obstacles. Like in this case, Gloria Steinem or you or I could have thought for a hundred years about the solution to the sex trafficking problem. And we never would have known it was an elephant problem. Mm -hmm. So we never would have thought of an electric fence. And magically, you get this roadmap to success that is typically much simpler and less onerous than what you would have expected or what you would have been willing to do. And you don't have to trust me. You just have to experiment on that to find that that's true. And then one of the most important parts of this is the least obvious, which is that when someone gives you that roadmap and tells you what it would take, they've implicitly committed to supporting the outcome. And so my read of the story of the elephants and the electric fence is that it wasn't the electric fence on its own that prevented sex trafficking in that village. It's the women of the village who had committed to protecting their friends and their neighbors from sex trafficking when they asked for the fence. So once they got the fence, they would make sure that nobody's falling into sex trafficking anymore from that village. I kind of love this. Uh, thank you. That was a great explanation. And I I love that uh, sometimes solutions to problems aren't always so obvious. That our, our our motivations are way more complex than just, oh, just, you know, just stop the, you know, more laws, you know, uh, we just need more laws, you know, stop the sex, sex traffickers themselves, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, we, we, we need all of that too, but yes. We, yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 and it doesn't need to be either or. Right. We uh, need the policies and we need the behavior yeah. changes. Yeah. I, I, I just love that. It reminds me of a, of a conversation we had yesterday with, uh, with, with someone about climate change and, uh, and how to reduce uh, people's dependency on eating uh, meat products. And, and he said, you know, you know, uh, some people are, are going to not, are going to stop eating beef because, uh, because of climate change. You know, they'll actually kind of make that connection, but other people might just stop because they like the idea of, of a, a more plant-based diet, or maybe they just get sick when they eat beef. You know, there's a whole bunch of different motivations that we don't always have to appeal. And, you know, and forgive me, I'm just thinking about the climate change stuff. Can I just mention, I hope this is okay, but uh, we understand that half of the profits from your book are going to support climate change. Is that correct? Yeah. Half of my profits is the author. Random House does whatever they want with their own profits. <laughs> okay. But, but, we might um, try to influence them, but you know, there we go. Yeah. yeah. At this point, great. Thank there, you. But, you know, they pay me the advance. And so they're essentially supporting people who are working on climate change. Yeah. yeah. My view of influence is that as you become a more influential person, your prize is that you get to work on bigger and bigger problems. Mm. And so I'm super fortunate. I get to have work that I love. I teach the 
class that I've invented that I absolutely love. I get to write a book about exactly what I want and have a great advance from the biggest publishing company in the world, even hire a wonderful team of people to work for me. And I don't actually need this money to live on because I'm already set. And so I said, what's the best thing that I can do with my extra resources? And everyone, I believe we all need to take care of ourselves and our families first so that we are in a better situation to be generous and do the things that we want to do and affect the changes we want. And when we're taken care of, let's work on the biggest problems that we can. And so I believe that the climate crisis is the existential crisis of mm-hmm. our generation. So I'm I'm putting half of my money on the book toward it. And I just made my first donation to 350.org of $50,000. And I'm excited to work with them. They're a grassroots climate activist organization that's done, doing great work around the world. And the, the people who are working on the climate crisis are people I am really excited to connect with. And so I, is it selfish? Maybe kind of. <laughs> I'm excited to have the book be out there and have me be connecting to a lot of the people working on this crisis. Like in a few weeks, I'll be speaking to the United Nations Green Climate Fund, which is the biggest green climate funding body in the entire world and doing a bunch of other stuff with climate activists. Wow. Zoe, that is fantastic. That is just an absolutely wonderful thing. And I think you, you bring up a really interesting point with that. It's this idea that the more influential you get, it you, you get to work on bigger problems that are more meaningful, that have a larger opportunity to, to make a difference in the world. And that, I think that is really telling. And I think that's really wonderful as you think about that. You also talked about the class that you, you teach. And so in the book, you bring, up, you bring up your class, your MBA class all the time. And as part of that, you talk about a lot of games or challenges that you do with your students. And, some, and they're, they're wonderful, by the way. And, and you might want to just kind of talk about some of those. But do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite kind of game or challenge that your, or or do your students say, this is my favorite one out of any of those? Okay. I love them all. And the whole, the whole (laughs) class is your children, right? It's your favorite kid. I will will pick one, uh, but I don't want any of the other challenges to feel bad. So (laughs) what the class is, is seven weeks of challenges outside the class. And I tell the students what we do in the classroom is infinitely less important than what you do outside of the classroom. And all of their grades are based on these challenges that are uncomfortable typically. And students, the class is called Mastering Influence and Persuasion. It's the most popular course at the business school at Yale, which is super fun and exciting. But it's just because people want to be influential, not because I'm such a great teacher, although of course I am, but it was standing alone <laughs> since the day that I started teaching because of the topic. But they, t- they call the class... <laughs> doing uncomfortable things that make you a better person. Uh-huh. And the one of the uncomfortable things that they do early on is a rejection challenge. Mm-hmm. And it's trying to get rejected. And what this does, it, this is Aikido influence with yourself. So it's flipping a switch in your brain that says rejection is failure to say rejection is success. So that does something weird and cool inside your mind and it helps you build resist resilience and confidence to continue going out and doing this and that the idea of getting rejected on small things to help you be confident and resilient when you 
ask about big things and get rejected on big things comes from the research on stress inoculation mm. and it's animal research and human research finding that the way that we build resilience and confidence is by putting ourselves under stress. So we do small stresses to be able to handle the big stresses. And what I challenge my students to do is replicate one of Jia Zhang's 100 days of rejection rejection challenges he made for himself. And I write about him in the book. He's become a friend of mine because one of my students for his rejection challenge reached out to Ja himself to say, hey, could I write a guest post for your blog? And Ja was like, sure, I'm busy, go ahead. Um, And and Ja Ja and I, I don't think I even mentioned in the book, we've ended up doing research together on rejection. And he's one of my favorite people on earth. But for your listeners, if you want just one tiny sample of job, this is one of my favorite things on the internet, is his day three rejection challenge when he goes to a Krispy Kreme donut shop in Austin, Texas, and he asks them to make Olympic ring donuts. It's during the Olympics. It's absolutely hilarious. And one of the reasons that my students love this and they and I love Ja is that he's not this just iconically charismatic, slick, outgoing, influential person. He's somebody who is shy, kind, relatable, a tiny bit socially awkward. He's from China. He has an accent. He doesn't speak English perfectly. A lot of my students are Asian. A lot of my students are from China. But I think all of us who don't feel eminently confident are much more inspired by somebody who's pushing himself outside his comfort zone. And that's why he's doing these rejection challenges. Oh, that's great. So there are a hundred of them. There's a whole library and they're super fun. One of the ones that I really liked was the bigger and better. Um, and, and again, taking, you want to talk a little bit about that one just sure. real quick? This is the most glamorous one. And that's the <laughs> other one that I was thinking, um, should it be that? The, so for listeners, for you, I think the most exciting thing to do is the rejection challenge. But for inspiration, definitely the most exciting one is the bigger and better challenge. And this is where you start with something tiny, like it could be a paperclip or a penny or a stamp, whatever. And you just trade it up with anyone on earth who's willing to trade with you for something bigger and better. And you trade that for something bigger and better and bigger and better. And you do it as many times as you want. And in the world, that, so I didn't invent this game. It's been around since the 50s. But I we play this game early on in class to challenge some of the implicit assumptions that we have about influence. And one of those deep assumptions is that polite people or nice people shouldn't be asking for more than we can reciprocate. Norms of reciprocation are so strong, right? So because you have to get something bigger and better than what you're offering, that challenges that assumption that you have. And also what you realize is that through this game, other people don't need to always have you be instantaneously paying them back or maybe not even paying them back ever. And there are a lot of us who are happy to play this kind of game with you. Like, I'm happy to give you something more than what you're offering me if you approach me with warmth and enthusiasm and you seem like a nice person. So these two students who absolutely blew my mind who played this game, played it for four days. They made 10 trades. They started with a paperclip and they ended up between a Monday and Thursday, they ended up with a car. They got a car from a car dealership here in New Haven. And then 
<laughs> these two students, one of them didn't have a driver's license and the other one was moving to Manhattan. They didn't even need the car. They were just challenging themselves to do something crazy and exciting. And they donated this car to a refugee family and a mom from Afghanistan who'd been commuting two hours a day each way to work on the bus. So this is beautiful, inspirational. And to me, this also illustrates as we become more influential and the more influence we have, don't think of this as just being, what can I get for myself? Because that's a playing small sort of mindset. And what can I get? What can I do? What can I give? And what can we do together? And we can do far, far more together than we can if we just have this narrow mindset of focused on being focused on what we can do for ourselves. I love that story. That That is fantastic. How much, to what degree does framing have to do with with uh, our ability to influence. I think about like the, the global warming versus climate change kind of kind of framing. Yeah. Right. For leaders, framing is the second simplest thing after magic question <laughs> that you can put into <laughs> practice and focus on. And great leaders and visionary leaders are unanimously talented at framing, choosing a perspective. So just a few words or a sound bite that give people a perspective for thinking about a problem or a situation that influences their expectations and even their experiences and climate change. So global warming to climate change to climate crisis is a great example of this power where global warming was the initial frame that, the, that a NASA scientist had come up with to explain what was going on globally. But it didn't really resonate with most people's experience First of all, because we couldn't feel it yet. We feel a lot more of it now than we did then. But second of all, it a lot of places were colder and getting more snow and just more unpredictable. And it didn't feel like an emergency, right? Like global warming, okay. Um, climate change was the, the frame that Republicans focused on. Yeah. Frank Luntz, he's yeah. a genius, genius influencer. Yes. Maybe the biggest genius influencer in the United States, it, with framing in particular. And he has this dial testing mechanism that tests system one responses to language. People will be listening to a message or watching a video, and they're just dialing a little dial right for yes or good left for no or bad. And after you get some practice with it, it just becomes habitual. So you're not thinking about it. There's no conscious thought at all. And so it's partly the machine that's this genius influence apparatus. And he was testing what frame could we use that would have people feel not worried about and not interested in the climate crisis. And so climate change became the, this is how climate change became the dominant explanation. It was more accurate than global warming. So it was better in this way. It was also good for Republicans who didn't want people to worry about it. And they had a lot of donations coming from companies like oil companies that needed us to not worry about the climate crisis. So it's very strategic shift to, with President George W. Bush, shift to climate change. And then in 2018, Al Gore's organization was the big global push behind let's shift this framing to climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And there was, a, there was neuropsychological testing going into this, brain scans and things like this, finding that both Republicans and Democrats 
in the United States where it's so politicized in other parts of the world, you guys know, I'm sure it's not so politicized. It's just a crisis. We all know it's a crisis. It's like the pandemic. It's not politicized in all these other parts of the world. It's just a crisis. (laughs) But we, we, we've done a very good job of making sure that it is political. Yeah. 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 So climate crisis is more worrisome and more activating for people on both sides of the political divide. And now many big media organizations across the world are using this frame of climate crisis that says we need to take action. It's very important. And it also has this this undertone of it is solvable, but we need to take action immediately. So it's not without hope, even though it says this is an emergency. So what do you think about the term replication crisis? (sighs) (laughs) Given we just talked about the movement from global warming to climate change to climate crisis, replication crisis. Here's the problem with my my problem with replication (laughs) crisis. Within the field, it's great. It's a perfect frame because it's super important. We need to solve it and we need to absolutely dramatically change the way we do research. And a lot of us are. We need to set very, very high bars for truth and replicability that we haven't in the past. All of that is super important. Replication crisis, perfect frame. However, outside of the field, in the broader world, what happens with all the people who want to study and practice behavioral science, and then also organizations like NIH who are deciding whether to fund behavioral science proposals see replication crisis and just say, especially when it's politicized, this debate over science, oh, well, you guys all suck and there's no real science behind it. So let's just wipe our hands of science altogether. And, And people in NIH and places like this are saying, wow, now that we see what's happened with the pandemic and all these people who aren't getting vaccinated, maybe we haven't been investing enough in behavioral science. I don't uh, think that that is the problem. That I I don't think that investing in behavioral science was more important than things like investing in public health. However, uh, it's there's this dual track where replication crisis only works well on one of those tracks. Yeah, it's, it's a, a great framing component here. And I know Tim wants to start start talking about music, but I have one question before we go there because I love the story and I think it's just really important. So um, you wrote about the Chiquino Scarpa, um, and I hope I pronounced that name right, bearing his half million dollar Bentley. Can you tell our listeners that story? Because I just found it really, really kind of amazing. Yes. And also listeners, there's a great video um, that you can find online, or maybe we can post it where you can see this happening. Okay. Fantastic. So I think, but I, I butcher Portuguese, but it's something like Chiquinho Scarpa. Yeah. So he is a Brazilian billionaire who's absolutely insane. And he cultivates this really wacky, scandalous persona. So he was the perfect person to create a scandal around the absolute atrocity of burying his super expensive car, his half million dollar Bentley in his backyard. And he says, I want to be like the pharaohs and I'm going to take this car with with me to the afterlife. And all these people are so pissed because what could you do with a half million dollars? You could do a lot of good. If you don't want the car, sell the car, donate it to charity, right? You can save people's lives. And he has a press conference. So there's media, there's helicopters, internet furor, all these people on talk shows getting so angry about it. 
And what happens when people show up for the press conference as the Bentley starts to get lowered into its grave, he calls a stop to the proceedings and he brings people inside where the real press conference is happening. And he says, the real tragedy here is that all of you are burying something far more important. You're burying your organs. And this is how Brazil launched their National Organ Donation Week. And so it was actually a public health campaign that was disguised as a scandal. And just in that one month, organ donation rates rose by, I think it was 35%. And and he becomes a hero. And so it uses this powerful frame of burying something really, really important and potentially life-saving that he's doing as the villain. And he flips that to say, no, you're the villain. You're the one who's doing that. Oh, wow. There is no easy segue to get into the music question after this. <laughs> you <can> go <laughs> you back know, to I'd... Prince, man. Go back to Prince. Well, we are going to go back to Prince, but uh, I am I am kind of caught up on this idea of just how cool it would be to go to a Prince concert with Eldar Shafir, first <laughs> of all. I'm sorry that I'm still, still caught on that. But um, so t- tell us what's on your playlist. What are you, what are you listening to these days? Has your, has your playlist evolved and changed in different ways through the pandemic? Yes, definitely. And I created a pandemic playlist at the beginning and oh, created did, it. And yeah. Kelly Leonard, who's the founder of Second City, he has yep. a podcast too. I don't know if you guys know him. He Love shared him. his pandemic playlist with me. So I was playing mine and Kelly Leonard's pandemic playlists that were um, really sort of apocalyptic, humorous ones for a long time. But But after getting to be around people again, what I was really happy about, and when I finally got to teach in the classroom again, is playing music before I start teaching a class or before I start teaching a workshop that is music from the places that the people in that room are from. So Mm. if I'm teaching MBA students, then I'm playing a very upbeat playlist that I update each year with advice from them of music from all over the world and the countries that they come from. And it, first of all, it's just really fun. Second of all, it helps cultivate this inclusive atmosphere where we're all welcome here. And then third of all, for each individual person who hears a song from their country, they are they have their gator brain get activated and they know that this is for them. And my whole frame for my teaching has shifted from, I talk about in the book how it used to be teaching Jedi mind tricks. And then because of Dani, Danny Meyer, who's a famous restaurateur who came to Yale and talked about how we're all in the hospitality business, I shifted my frame for teaching to be hosting a party. And so Mm. this is me hosting a party. And when I'll teach groups of executives from other places, if you are from South Korea, I'm going to be playing the top 40 Korean playlist from (laughs) Spotify. If you're, you know, visiting from Mexico, I'm going to be playing a Mexican playlist. And the vibe that's created before I even start teaching is so comfortable and it's so fun they feel welcome. I feel welcome. And we feel like we understand each other just from this tiny little tweak. So I encourage anyone who's in a position to be teaching, hosting, leading meetings with people from other places or other generations that you think about playing the music for them. I love the intentionality of that, right? The idea that you are purposely 
looking and searching for those connections to the, the person, whether it be their geographical home or if it's, as you said, age, different elements of different genres, different things. It's so wonderful to, to be able to do that. And it, it does it. It kind of creates that immediate connection in music as as much as I you know deride Tim on us talking about music all the time. Music does have a power that I think goes beyond other ways of of touching to our emotions. And so I think what you just talked about is absolutely wonderful. And anybody, it doesn't even need to be in a big hosting thing. It can be in just like, hey, we're having people over. Let's figure out what they want to listen to, what's going to connect with them. Um, those are fantastic ideas. Yeah. Basically, if you want to influence someone, almost always you want them to feel good. And playing the music that they like is such an easy way to have them feel good. So simple. Okay. Uh, last music question. I'm just curious if you were forced to spend a year on a desert island alone, and for all the terrible things that might go along with that, what two artists' music would you bring with you? What, what musical artists would you tag along? Okay, I'm just going to bring two songs and play them over and over and over and over again. Wow, wow, not even two, just two songs, okay. I'm going to bring the two songs that I'm obsessed with right now. And one is Rasputin by Boney M. And this is a 70s disco song that got popular with Gen Z and I get all my music from my daughter now. It's (laughs) So just just knowing that it's a disco song about Rasputin, how could that not be awesome? I'm I'm and hooked right away. Yeah, it's absolutely. Amazing. And yeah. the other song is from the show Money Heist. And everyone, if you haven't watched it yet, you absolutely have to. It's a global sensation so much that there's a whole documentary about the phenomenon of Money Heist. It's a Spanish show. And their theme song is called Bella Ciao. It's an Italian folk song that is an anti-fascist anthem. And it's so good. I sing it all the time in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding okay oh, it must be good i i'm i love being turned on to new music i am not familiar with any disco songs about rasputin <laughs> ever i don't think that there's a, a lineage around that um but that is fantastic zoe thank you so so much for being our guest today on behavioral grooves thank you so much tim thank you so much kurt it's really a pleasure i so enjoyed talking with you guys oh thank you Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Zoe, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our super influential minds. Yeah, yeah. We are super influential, aren't we? It's our superpower, right? This is this is it. It is Truly. actually this is all right. So, you know, we always start this a little, you know, lighthearted, but I think that is a really key piece that she's talking about here. This idea that we have more influence and influence is probably easier than we think it is. Yeah. Yeah. That That's a great way of, of framing this. In fact, our whole conversation was Zoe really working to uh, sort of give us the tools that we need to, to sort of demonstrate that persuasion or influence specifically is a lot easier than we think it is. You know, and we've had a couple other guests this past year that that are on the, on the same thing, right? I mean, Cialdini, who, um, yep. you know, is kind of the the godfather of influence as we think about this and, and how he's redid his book and, and all the insights that he's had, you know. But then we also had Vanessa Bonds, right, who, who yep. talks about 
uh, influence. And so influence is a really hot topic at this point. And I think it's a hot topic because there's so much research out there now that shows we do have more influence than we think we do. And we can learn how to harness that influence in positive ways that are going to be beneficial to us as well as to the society at a whole. John Levy as well. Oh, yes. yes. You know, certainly emphasize this. And and I think that the cool thing that that Zoe focuses on is that uh, with some intentionality and some focus, you can build up these skills. Uh, and I love the, the Prince conversation, right? That talking about how, how, you know, poor little Roger was just nothing, right? He was just this skinny <laughs> little kid who knew how to, you know, as, as Terry, um, as, um, uh, Terry Lewis says of the Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis combination said, you know, everybody loved Prince in high school because he could play the lead to stairway to heaven and nobody else could do that. But he had no personality. He developed it. He was very intentional. And that makes a difference. It does make a difference. And and I love this idea that, you know, if we have influence, then we can do influential things. And yeah. that I think is a key concept as we think about this. And and to your point, you know, the 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 Prince story identifies this fact that you don't you don't have to be born. There are certain people that we all know, we all see that it feels like they're just charismatic and they can influence anybody right. by just walking into the room. Well, probably some of that might be natural, but probably some of that is also very intentional and they they've learned it and they're they're using this superpower that they have to to do that. And that piece right there, that idea that we all have the ability to to improve on the way that we uh, influence others, we influence those those folks within our, our our world, that can lead to doing influential things in the world. And I think that's really powerful. And the fact mm. that she talks about, you know, that what was what was her quote? You're in this behavioral groove of doing influential things. People want to say yes to you. I mean, hey, it's a behavioral groove is all influence is. Yes. That's what yes. it is, man. We we've actually we've actually influenced somebody else to think about the world as a behavioral groove. How about that? <laughs> Amazing. Let's let's talk about some tools. Let's, okay. Let's, all, all right. right. All right. What what tool do you want to talk about? This idea of asking hypothetically, I thought was so good. It's like it takes us out of the realm of 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 specificity, and it's like then I, you know I have to answer for myself. But if we just start with this this idea that well, hypothetically speaking, could this happen or would this make sense? It's a really way. It's a nice way of softening the uh, the exchange between the asker and the responder that I really liked. I just thought that that was really cool. Well, and I like the idea too, because this is it, part of this is in context of people who may have a different opinion than you. You know, we've talked about tribes and social uh, groups and different pieces and this idea of that the other side never listens to us and how can we influence others who have a different um, social identity than we do and believe different things than we do. Well, by asking hypothetical questions, you can circumvent that. You can right. help in lowering those defenses down in order to get people to not have that immediate 
reaction that says, oh, wait, you're trying to do something here. It's this is a hypothetical question. What, you know, what is this like? And that yeah. opens up the, po- the realm of possibility. And I think that's a big piece of this. So, yeah, which lends itself to the magic question, Tim. And it just remind us, what is the magic question? So what would it take for you <laughs> to, you know, tell me about the magic question? You know, that that's, that it's 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 this very simple it, yeah. idea that, you know, so what would it take? It's so it's it's saying we're you're going to do this. It just is a matter of it's going to what what will it take for you to do this it's a, almost a presumptive close with a component of saying tell me what it's going to take and I, I you know it's it's fascinating to think and zoe i think brings this up really well with some of the examples she talks about both in the book but also with us of how powerful that is where you think seriously that's it but it it works I like how you brought up the the presumptive close because people who are in sales or possibly even in marketing are probably familiar with that term, the presumptive close. And yet this, this question of what would it take is also a way of opening up the conversation that, and when she gave the example of the African village and, and when Gloria Steinem asks the women, you know, what would it take? The, the answer was not a, a specifically about how to, how it wasn't so directed at, we just need to stop, you know, the, the abuse. Yeah. It's, it was actually about, wow, they actually thought about it and said, well, there's sort of a, a higher level issue here that if we solve that, if we just get the fences up, that will stop the elephants. And when we stop the elephants, that stops our, uh, keeps our fields growing, which makes us more economically powerful, which means there will be less prostitution. Right. It's we like, can send the wow. kids to school then and they can do all these other factors. Yeah. And to your point, it's a, great, it's a great way of opening it up. Yes. that The idea of opening this up to a larger, broader perspective, because too often, and we talk about this in, in selective attention, right? This idea, the, the, the gorilla piece, right? We get so myopic in focusing in on one aspect. This is a sex trafficking thing. This is that. And by asking this magic question, you allow that field of view to open up to a much larger perspective and potentially come in with a different solution set that you would have never thought of if you would have kept that myopic view. So the second thing I wanted to to talk about in these tools is the bigger and better challenge Mm. that it's certainly taken to the extreme when you start with a paperclip and end up with a a car. That's That's, pretty cool. That's dramatic. I told my kids that I told my kids that though. And now they're, they're, they're plotting like, Oh, how can I do that? (laughs) I told them that story. (laughs) I was like, Oh yeah. So I, when I go, you you guys aren't old enough for a car yet. So don't even try. (laughs) But it's worth a try. I kind of like that actually. Uh, What I like about it more than that radical um, sort of hyperbolic uh, example is that it says we don't always have to come to an exchange feeling like I have to have more than the other person in order for them to do. I have to be built offering them more. You could actually offer them less as long as it's something that you both agree on is an, is a fair exchange. And we kind of never know unless we ask. Yeah. I think the big piece there is that unless we ask this idea that we too often put our own barriers up to those 
those questions of asking oh, for something. Yeah. Well, they'll never do it because of this. They won't do it because of that. And this kind of allows that process to, you know, we we don't short circuit ourselves in advance. We allow the other person to either say yes or no. And that can be scary, but it also goes to show we hear yes a lot more than we think we hear yes. You know, it, it, that is a that is really a great that's a, a a great reminder that we do hear yes a lot more than we hear no, and we have to pay attention to that. And I it reminds me of Roy Baumeister saying, in 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 a in an exchange in a relationship, the relationship works better when there are five really good things happening in exchange for every one bad thing. That there needs to be this oh, five four or to six one? to one, the four to one, or four to one, yeah, yeah, four to one ratio, yeah. So you got to kind of keep the big picture in mind that occasionally there's going to be no's, but most of the time there's a lot of yeses. So let's dwell on the, on the positive side. Well, and you think again, you go back into Vanessa bonds. I mean, we are more likely to say yes than no, because there's this element of uh, wanting to keep a positive relationship with folks and various different things. And the, the, you know, the other side of that is true. More people are going to want to say yes, because they want to maintain a positive relationship if they feel like you're a, a good person and a worthy person. So this liking aspect is important, you know, then it goes back to some of this piece about music, Tim, and making people feel good. <laughs> I thought you might like yeah. that. Well, just quoting Zoe here, I think she said, if you want to influence someone, almost always you want them to feel good and playing the music that they like is such an easy way to make them feel good. It's so intuitive. It's and also incredibly, how... it feels like it could be incredibly manipulative. No, <laughs> but, but, gotta, but, but this so I... you have to use this ethically. Yeah. But this idea that she picks out the music from the locations of the students in her class, yeah. going through that extra effort of just identifying who it is that you're working with. And doing something personal. And we've talked about this from recognition to others. Mm -hmm. So if you're in an opportunity to interact with people, there is power in taking the extra time to just say, hey, what era did these guys grow up in? What region of the world did they grow up in? Is there something, is there some way we can find out what their musical tastes are? And then bring that to, to the table. I think it's great. I had a good friend, I have, have a good friend, uh, but many years ago, she was a very high-performing sales rep. And she said that she got to know her top clients well enough so that when she went on vacation, she would buy them little gifts that were really closely associated with things that they liked, books or tapestries or, 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 or candles or things like that. And it was really meaningful and ultimately influential to bring them something they liked. Mm -hmm. So just, just want to reinforce that. Well, I don't know, Kurt. I mean, that's, that's reciprocity right there, but it's reciprocity right with a much more meaningful component because it's, it's, yeah. you know, idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic, my God, if I can say that, that would be great. But it's this idea that it's for that person. It is, I, you, you've identified them and that, Extra effort goes a long way. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. With that, Groovers, we come to the end of another discussion about applying behavioral science and behavioral insights 
to your life. We come away from our conversation with Zoe with a clear idea of how important it is to be intentional about building some muscle in the way that you influence your world. Yeah, Zoe really kind of helps us along the way. It's almost like she's giving us a bit of a tailwind, mm. right? With some really simple and powerful tools like framing and asking hypothetical questions and, of course, asking the magic question. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, the magic question. I love that. So, Tim, what would it take for you to teach me how to play guitar <laughs> like Prince? Well, uh, you would have to assume that I can play guitar like Prince in order to pass that along to you. (laughs) I think that's a stretch. Yeah, well, I think there's probably an impossibility of me ever being even to just even play the guitar. But that's that's to play like Prince. Wow, that would be great. So just thought I'd try the magical question with you, but maybe we could try the magical question with with our audience. You know, what would it take for you, our listeners, to share behavioral grooves with somebody that you know. Just send them a link. What would it take? What do you need from what us? Would it Let take? us know. Yeah. Yeah. Name your price. <laughs> well, maybe not name your price, but $2.22. <laughs> okay, Groovers. Thanks for hanging out with us. And we hope that you check out Zoe's book. It's a great introduction to behavioral science and really cool ideas that you can apply to your work and your personal life. Yeah. And if you liked what you heard, please just give us a quick five-star rating or leave us a review. And again, what would it take for you to leave a review? What would it take? Let us know. We'd love to know. And we hope that this week you take the magic question with you and you go out and find your groove. <laughs>